urban and Māori. They had left everything that they knew, so they were stuck in these cities. Today, 85% of us live in urban places. Something about Wellington draws me in. I am a city girl. They had to go to the city because they were shifted there. In this concrete jungle, in the urban sprawl, what is it that keeps us grounded? My tupuna have been thriving here for many generations. I'm Māori wherever I go. My name is Kahukutia and this is He Kākanoa Hau, weaving together strands of connection for Māori in the city. Home for me is Waimana, a small valley community on the northern edge of Te Urewera. Up the valley, most of the roads are still gravel and horses are still the most popular way to get around. I was really privileged to grow up there, to know my tuhuetana, to know my Fano. I always know how to get back to home. By the end of high school I was itching to leave, so I came to Wellington. After growing up in this place where almost everyone is Māori, I'm now in this environment where being Māori means you stick out, where most people haven't even been to a marae. I had to go searching to find my tūranga waiwai in the city, and eventually I did. Having been here for a couple years now, I know that living in the city doesn't have to mean disconnection. We're starting things off in Te Whanganui Atara, otherwise known as Wellington. The Tūranga Waiwai that I found in Wellington is a marae hidden away in Island Bay on the southern coast called Tapu Teranga. I first came to Tapu Teranga when I was 10 years old. It wasn't until I moved to Wellington again that I found it and realised that this crazy 11-storey marae that I thought I'd imagined was actually a real place. In the years between 1936 and 1986, the Māori population went from 83% rural to 83% urban. That's one of the fastest rates of urbanisation in the world. Tapu Teranga was built by those migrating Māori to meet their own needs away from home in the city. A place to be fed, a place to sleep, a place to be Māori. For me, it feels only right that we start our kopapa here. So those who build the house are built by the house. This is my friend Pare Sanyasi. Her father, Bruce Stewart, was the mastermind behind Taputeranga Marae. We're sitting in a little den off the side of the Farekai. This is where Pare and a few others do their rongoa work. I've been here for birthdays, tangihanga, wānanga, Sunday lunches, hui, and a million other kaupapa. At the time of this interview, what I didn't know was that this would be my last ever time in this whare. My papa, he was born in 1936 in Hamilton. So was he raised on a traditional motto? No, no, he didn't even know he was Māori until his first day of school and they made it known that he was Māori. And so he was extremely disconnected and so a lot of what he did in his life was just trying to reconnect with his taha Māori. So he did some really great things in his life. He did some not-so-good things in his life. All because he was just this, like, lost boy. One of those not-so-good things landed him in jail. And so he was in the Rimutaka prisons. 
and he had never seen so many Māori people all in the same place all at the same time. But he decided for the first time in his life he had found a place in Aotearoa where he felt safe enough to discover his Māori tanga. In Rimutaka prison. In Rimutaka prison. At this stage, he's in his mid-40s. So he had done a lot of things in his life, but this is where he truly made an intentional decision to reconnect. In prison, Bruce met Amster Reedy, a komatua from Ngāti Purau. Amster Reedy came to the prison to teach the boys haka, and he was the first person Bruce ever met that was proud to be Māori and wasn't in prison. It was after that that Matua Bruce first went searching for knowledge about his own Māori tanga in the prison library. Eventually he found an article from the famous Māori publication Te Ao Ho. And it talked about what the marae was, and it was his everything. It was his beginning and his end. So it was his museum, his art gallery, his school, his kindergarten through to his university, the place that he was born and the place that he would be buried. And so my dad was just like, this is it. So he felt that what he had been looking for for such a long time was staring at him right in the face at this point. Mm. And so that's when his vision started to form on what a marae should be today, what it should do for urban Māori today. The migration of men like Bruce to the city was well documented in the media. This radio programme, The Māori Today, gives a window into what attitudes were like in 1964. The Māori is leaving the traditional power with its old-time communal life and he's migrating in hundreds to the urban areas throughout the country. In many cases, he's come into the cities unprepared. There's no accommodation, no job, and frequently no means of communication. Some Māoris feel their English is inadequate to cope with the, more often than not, conservative Pākehā landlord and employer. But he stays anyway, anywhere at times, because he wants work. Bruce was drawn to Wellington for the same reasons as so many other young Māori. It's kind of like this promised land part two and it was the promised jobs. And when they got to the big smokes, they were the last resort in terms of employment. And so they, a lot of them ended up homeless. And some of them, that's fine, they could just go back home. A lot of them, they couldn't go back home. There was this mamai that their people felt this sense of abandonment so they said look if you go to that city don't you come back to us mm. and so a lot of these young people made that sacrifice for these jobs and it turns out that those jobs weren't a thing why do you think that mamai was there well, because it was almost this new kind of war between Māori and Pākehā, so muskets were gone, mm. but it, there was this huge divide. Mm. So if you cross the fence, don't come back. Mm. You stay with us or you go with them. 
So the perception was that you're leaving the world of your people? Yeah, and so they were stuck in these cities. Mm. And they had left everything that they knew, and by that I mean the sense of hapu or iwi that they may have had, now did not exist. They were completely alone. And that makes for some pretty desperate boys. So as we know, in the 60s and 70s in particular, with the rise of gangs in Wellington. Bruce spent a lot of time in Aro Park, which a lot of people in Wellington know as Pigeon Park. It was there that young men who had nowhere else to go used to gather together. One night, tensions came to a head. Yeah, there was a murder on Hopper Street. Two of the boys. They were w- walking down, I think, looking for a party. And a Pākehā man walked past them and slurred something racist. And they had had enough and they kicked him and he died that night. So all the residents on Hopper Street woke up to this body in the gutter. And it was all over the papers, it was everywhere. All of a sudden, Māori were a real threat to society. Someone had to fix it. It had to be someone's responsibility. Someone had to fix the issue of Māori in Wellington City. And so that sort of rested on the shoulders of the then mayor, Michael Fowler. It was a Christmas Eve in Newtown when the mayor, Michael Fowler, pulled up to Bruce's shed in his limousine. He brought with him a loaf of bread and a block of butter, and with the boys they talked all night about the vision that Bruce had in jail for building a marae where Māori in the city could feel grounded. He woke up the next morning feeling like he had almost had this like invisibility cloak over him, provided by the mayor, this level of protection. So with that sense of security, my dad went out in search of land to buy, which is an interesting thing for a man with no money to do. (laughs) So he saw an ad in the paper, which led him to the Sisters of the Home of Compassion, and they were selling land. Um, They had 52 acres, and they sold us 50 and kept two. And how did that faith come about? Like, because they didn't even know him. He didn't know him. (laughs) They're just children of God. Who put faith in this they guy? They just put faith up. in this guy who signed the deed to the land flanked by patched gang members <laughs> and only had $25 to put down as the deposit. Matua Bruce started work on the marae the day the sale went through. Right from the beginning, he was joined by dozens of young Māori men and women who all just needed a place to stay. There was something missing for all of them. And I think for a lot of them, they said, look, we'll just come here because it's either death or jail for us. Mm. So at least here we're hidden. This marae became a place of refuge for those Māori who were fresh in the city. Thinking back to my own migration to Wellington, I came here with friends and I had whānau who were already here. And still, it was hard and isolating a lot of the time. Because of that, I feel so much aroha for those who had to come here in the 70s, when no doubt it was even harder. This is an interview with Bruce Stewart on the 1979 show Te Puna Wai Kōrero. For me, I think it shows how Tapu Tiranga then was part of a bigger picture for everyone involved. 
the home is taking us a long time to build our big, big house um, because we're hand-making everything. We hand-make furniture. Um, everything is sculptured because it's creative. It's, people are building the house, but more than that, they're building themselves through creativity. It was built in secret. It was built illegally, which is why we're all recycled, because we just picked all of our materials out of the dumpster. Because in Capital City, in the 70s, it was the only way you could have gotten away with it. Mm. Imagine trying to get a permit for an urban marae. So, and the marae is 98% recycled? Yeah, 95. 95% recycled materials. Down to the nails being straightened out after being used in buildings. It wasn't called sustainable living then. It was just called surviving. You've got to feed your whanau. You've got to heal them. You've got to house them. So everything that comes under being a self-sustainable community is just something that you have to do. Taputeranga today has continued to grow and grow. It's no longer illegal and in fact Taputeranga is a huge part of the local community. The way I've best heard it described is that it kind of looks like this 11-storey Harry Potter treehouse. I've been coming here often for the last four years and honestly I'm still discovering rooms that I never knew existed. To get a sense of what it looks like, you kind of have to do the tour all the way around. So it's the world's largest and tallest fully wooden house on wooden piles made out of recycled materials. So the structure is very unique. And was it all built at the same time? No, it wasn't built at the same time. It's something that evolved with the people who built it. Mm. Cool. Kia ora san. San, mihi atu. Pari's three-year-old son Tukapua and her husband Enoch find us standing on the Marayatea. He's off. Tukapua's daily favourite activity is to visit the ducks that live a bit further down the dirt track. You want to go see Koro? <laughs> they decide to come with us to go see Pari's father. Matua Bruce Stewart died in 2017 and he's buried in a small urupa that sits in the car park at the front of the marae. I think this is a tikanga that freaks a lot of people out because it's not something they've ever seen before. Yeah, so we're in a little an urupa that we created when my papa died. We've planted trees around it, sort of to shelter the urupa away from the rest of the whenua. Those, those trees and shrubs are still quite small. They haven't been in for long. And we're looking at my papa who has a beautiful carved pau to mark his spot carved out of a tree that means a lot to him and then we planted flowers on him so that he's colourful through all the seasons. And these trees around the side, are they all natives? Well, other than the lavenders. We wanted to do both natives, which he loved, and flowers that saved the bees. And do you think, like, will this be a place that more of your whanau are buried? Yeah. I don't think all of them will be buried here. I know a good chunk of my whanau are going to want to go back to where they whakapapa. And then some of us will be buried down here. And you think you'll be here, eh? I'll definitely be here. Yeah. 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 
The whānau here are working hard, 45 years after this marae was built, to honour the vision that Bruce Stewart had. And you have honey out here too? Yeah, we've got bees. Can you tell me about that kaupapa, where you had people out here learning about beekeeping? Yeah, so through MSD, doing a beekeeping course, through job seekers. So along the same lines of the kaupapa that we've always done, but adapting to the times. Why do you think it's significant and important to have these things set up? Because communities need them, and that's always been our thing. Mm. It's just that simple to us. We have always responded to what our hapuri needs, because that's who we are. We're not an iwi-affiliated marae. Mm. We're not a traditional marae. Mm. We weren't here before the Pākehā were. Mm. We're all taurahere. We're a whānau who does not come from this whenua, who set up this marae in response to what our community needed. That's the reason why we started in the 70s, but we're still here, so we need to continue to do that. Because growing up, I used to think that it put us at a disadvantage. A lot of the grants that iwi-affiliated marae received didn't apply to us. But I don't think that ever affected us, because I think we just did our own thing anyway. We were created, we were built by all these young people who were just trying to survive. And so they would survive with or without the money. We just went on without it. Yeah. So we've actually just um, got some tamariki next door. What yeah. are they up to? We've got a kura who um, are practising in our farikai for the secondary school regional competition in Wellington. And you often have other people through like that? Almost every day. Almost every day. <laughs> Almost every day we have different people in the whare. I've always really loved the lifestyle of living on an urban marae, a really busy urban marae. Mm. I will never grow tired of serving a marae that serves me. It's something that I don't think will ever grow old. Mm. So, like, I don't see myself ever leaving. I've never spent more than seven days away because I get itchy feet, like, I, I need to go back. She said bracket sounds good, eh? Over the years, Tapu Teranga has faced many challenges. Resource consent, legal fights, community pushback and even bulldozers turning up at the gate. One of the most important challenges, though, was probably getting the council's approval for Bruce's last wish, to be buried at the marae that he built. In all fairness, I understand why. We didn't have an urupa established. It, actually, it takes a lot of legal stuff to establish an urupa because mm. you're talking about putting a body in the ground. But your father always knew he wanted to be buried Oh, 100%. I would have done it whether we got the consent or not. There's no other place in the whole of the country where he could have gone to rest. There's just no other place. So I would have done it. I had plans, putting a tarpaulin up three in the morning, digger in, digger out, no one knew. And then taking an empty coffin to a cemetery, I went that far, <laughs> really. But we were blessed that we were able to do it and able to do it legally. Mm. You know, I still think he would have rolled in his grave knowing that it was done legally because I almost think he wanted to go out with one last illegal bang. But it made things a lot easier on his uri 
fun to go down legally, yeah. And when did you get consent to bury him? We got consent during the tangi. So we didn't know what was going to happen. What I actually didn't realise is that there are actually many urban marae that don't have an urupa. Right. What tikanga did you bring with you to this place and what did you grow for yourselves? So other than the external things and the legal things, the tikanga thing has probably been one of our biggest challenges. We had to start from scratch. But I've been to many marae where things are just done a little bit different and it's because it makes sense to those people. Our urupa's in the front because it makes sense to us. We're an urban marae. We don't have kaumatua like everyone else does. We just don't, because our kaumatua are our gates, they're our protection. My dad was really the only kaumatua here by himself for a really long time. So when he passed away, we were really vulnerable and open. We're all young. And that's been one of the scariest things, Mm. not having that level of protection. So we had to create tikanga that protects us. Mm. And so we put our urupa in the front, because like our kaumatua, they are our front line. We trust them with our lives. Mm. So you come through them first before you get to us. And if you have bad intentions, you won't be able to get through. I left Taputiranga feeling warm and fed, as I always do. Looking up at this marae, I see the kotahitanga of Māori made physical. It's made real. This is a tangible solution for Māori who needed a place to be themselves. Even today it continues to be a safe place for Māori. I know wahine who learned how to karanga there for the first time, people who said their pepeha there for the first time. To those who know it, Taputiranga is such an important place. And so, it was because of my love for Taputiranga that I woke up feeling broken-hearted on a Sunday morning a few weeks after our interview. At 8am, I checked my phone for the first time that day. That's how I found out that Taputiranga had burned to the ground overnight. Flames spreading across the night sky and growing far too quickly for a unique Wellington landmark to be saved. It seemed like a... A flick of, a, of an eye, it just spread throughout the whole place. The multi-storey main building, made entirely of recycled materials, was completely destroyed, but one meeting building was saved. The whānau are devastated at what has happened. At first I couldn't believe it, but the news spread fast and soon the images of the whare on fire were everywhere. In the chaos of the two weeks after, Pari also gave birth to a baby girl. Like hundreds in the community, I provided kai and kind words to the whānau. But what can you say in the wake of losing such a significant piece of history? After all, losing that marae must have felt like losing a loved one. Kia ora. Hi. 
We're in Paddy's house just above the marae. Outside in the dark, I can see the hill where Tapu Teranga once stood. In the early hours on the 9th of June, the main building at our home, Tapu Teranga, was taken by fire. We lost three... Sorry. Sorry, this is the first time I'm talking about it. I'll go again. What happened was just after midnight, our whare was taken by fire. We lost the whole of the main building, including three of our whare moi, three of our whare tupuna, our whare kai and my dad's house. Mm. There was a group staying on the marae at the time and they alerted my brother who was living in my dad's house. And very quickly, the word went out, so I saw the fire from my window in my lounge. And within 10 or 15 minutes, the firefighters responded. Do you know what happened with the fire? What caused it? Yeah, so the official fire forensics report just confirms what we already knew, and it was started by embers left in a brazier. Hmm. I think back on when we were here just a couple of weeks ago and you presented this really clear vision of the future of creating the sustainable community and I also think about the whakatauki of your father and his vision for Tapu Teranga. I wonder where your whakaro are at in terms of a long-term vision. Is there going to be a rebuild? What's the future for this place, do you think? Yeah, <clears throat> the fire hadn't even stopped when we as a whana decided that we would rebuild. Not much time has passed and we're still just trying to be okay. So we haven't sat down and made like a plan for this rebuild. We just know it's going to happen. We're really determined and hungrier than we were before. And our whakatauki, nga te ringa tangata i hanga i te whare, nga te tuara o te whare i te tangata, those who build the house are built by the house to us is more relevant now than it was before because we feel that we are standing in the same place as those young Māori were in the early 1970s and we feel the hurt that they feel and we look at Bēwhenua as as they looked at Bēwhenua and right now that is our long-term plan. In making this episode, unknowingly I stood inside that whare for the last time. How many times had I thought, man, it would be so cool to be part of the building of this place. For me, this is such an important part of the history of urban Māori. This was a place built by urban Māori and lived in by urban Māori to this day. And so this episode comes to an end. But the story of Tapu Teranga certainly does not. 
at this time my aroha sits with the whānau of Tapatiranga, but so do my hands when the time comes to rebuild this marae. With Tapitiranga on our minds, we're heading to Ōtautahi Christchurch for episode 2. If Tapitiranga was a way for Māori in the 70s to be connected to their culture, I'm wondering what it takes today. Karakia before every meal, not just the ones where it's like, anyone for karakia? Even with makers? You yeah. You like to get a feed of makers, do you do a karakia? Just a quiet one to myself. Oh, that's way better than I've been doing. <laughs> He Kākanoa Ho is written, researched and hosted by me, Kahukutia. Produced by Francis Morden. Melody Thomas is the editor and production and script consultant. The theme music Rito is composed and performed by Geneva Alexander Masters. Additional music by Marati K, Electric Wire Hustle and Asia. Artwork by Huriana Kōpeke Teaho. Mark Chesterman is the series engineer and Ursula Grace is the executive producer. Archival sound recording in this series is from the RNZ collection at Nga Taonga Sound and Vision, and it's all made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. <laughs>